Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. January 28th, 2024, episode 236, The Manual. Hello everyone, welcome into the corner. My name is Kevin England and this is another episode of the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. This weekend, we had some family staying with us, and one of the conversations that came up during the idle chit-chat is, before we acknowledge it, we've already blown through January. Can you believe it? It really feels like the holiday season just passed, and yet we're on the cusp of February. That makes me say to you in the opening of the show that the beekeeping season's going to be here in short order, and whatever you plan to do in these off-season cold winter months, well, if you're in the temperate zone at least, you better get to it. For this time of year, I often find myself dabbling on my computer and looking through the mountain of artifacts that I have available to me and circling around for things that I want to get to when I'm not outside in the bee yard. You know, it also affords me the time to rediscover things that I left on my someday maybe list, and this episode's going to be a mix of odds and ends related to those ideas. As to the agenda, roundtable number one, it's a side distraction about how could you harvest bee bread pellets out of honeycomb? I'm going to tell you a couple of novel ways. Roundtable number two, it's time. I was recently struck by an impression that the podcast website needed a bit of a freshening up. In this roundtable I call Shiny, I'm going to let you know about their recent updates to bkcorner.org. Roundtable number three is one of those winter projects that I want to get to. I'm going to introduce you to the notion of creating wax pastilles. Roundtable number four, it's called Reflection. I want to spend a moment reminiscing about the things spoken of in the past with the notion that someday we might come back to them to see if we could find solutions to the questions left unanswered. To the back of the book, there are two topics for this episode. Topic number one is a theoretical walkthrough of how you might feed your colonies in the spring to give them an optimal head start should you be planning something along the lines of performing splits for growth, which you will come to learn that I'm going to be in need of of this upcoming season. Topic number two, it's a must-see resource about interacting with insects of all kinds. And that's all I'm going to say is I want it to be a bit of an enlightenment when you get to it. Plan to close the episode with sharing a little bit of an update of what's going on in the apiary. And what's been going on with me personally, a bit of how it relates to the management mentoring program. And, well, I noticed that the conference schedule for EAS looks amazing, and I'm going to talk about that for a bit. Before we head into the episode, just a little bit of administrivia. The website is www.bkcorner.org. There you can find links to resources and the timeline and agenda for every show in the catalog listed on the site. If you want to jot me off a note, my email address is kevin at bkcorner.org. 
If you're a new beekeeper or someone who recently started and you find yourself struggling a little bit, please take the time to visit our Getting Started in Beekeeping program, which I'll talk about later, available at managedmentoring.com. All right, all right, all right. Let's go. <laughs> Round table number one, bee bread. There's a machine out there that harvests bee bread out of honeycomb. Pretty amazing device. And, well, I get a little squishy when it comes to harvesting pollen, given accounts of contamination from the landscape. It seems odd to me that I would have apprehension about this, but I've seen enough studies where pollen was examined. And, well, the nasties were commonly reported, and it gives me pause as to if I would want to consume pollen these days. Still, the process to harvest pollen locked into comb is too enticing not to explore. Over the years, I've seen a few approach, and in fact, I've covered some pollen that I harvested at one point in the show, and a short recap is I cut some honeycomb laden with bee bread through the midrib, and I poked out each of the pollen pellets with a chopstick cell by cell. Tedious, time-consuming, but you know, the thing is, I didn't need that much. It was sort of a labor of love commitment at the moment. What did I do with it? I used it to feed back to the bees while rearing queens, but that's another topic. It is amazing to feed them pollen when you're doing that activity. But to the point of this roundtable, I wanted to talk about two other alternatives that are interesting. Or maybe I'll throw in a bonus here. The first idea comes from a paper published February 2019 from T and F, the letter T, A-N-D, the letter F, online.com. A handful of researchers released an article entitled, An Innovative homemade bee bread collector as a tool for sampling and harvesting. The short of that article is that a team of researchers were trying to get, you know, find some means to pull out bee bread for research purposes. The device they came up with is akin to a straw with a plunger. The device employs a small rigid tool, a spring, and a plunger that operates not too differently than a Ball paint, ballpoint pen, clicky, clicky, clicky. You plunge the tube into the cell until you hit the midrib, and then you draw it out. It pulls a perfect plug. And alas, if you use something like a metal straw for this, you would have to figure out how to poke the contents out. Kevin moment. Incidentally, I recall that I've seen a tool like this used for queen rearing. Someone took a metal straw filed the edges to make it sharp so that it would puncture and used it to plunge into the comb and create a plug for extracting the perfect candidate larva for queen rearing. And it's interesting how similar this is, but in a totally different application by a totally different team trying to achieve a totally different objective. End of Kevin moment. There are pros and cons and I think I'll get the con out of the way. It's manual. If you're looking to collect a few small samples like the researchers were, no big deal. That being said, for the researchers, it was 
probably spot on. Pluck, 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 and they got what they needed in short order. Now, there was one interesting little wrinkle and aside about the paper where this was all talked about is a different process. They did create a straw, but instead of having a plunger, they figured out how to hook some sort of mechanical vacuum to it. The plunger had a motor on it with something akin to, let's just say, a drill bit. They stuck it in. The drill bit had a hollow end, but sharpened teeth on it. I'm not going to go crazy trying to describe this, but generally what happened is the motor spun this thing at the end of the straw and then they had a vacuum on it. And as it spun through, it broke off bits of the pollen and the vacuum sucked it out into the vacuum. Yeah, I'm not looking to go down the rabbit hole, but that was an alternative take. But the point of this is you could put it in the cell, push a button and vacuum, vacuum, vacuum and keep going and you would get a pretty big collection rather quickly. Hmm. The real benefit of the application from what I could see about what they did was how clean the plug was compared to the next one I'm going to talk about. Moving on, the second approach is more of a commercial application for harvesting pollen and goes to the opening. There's a machine sold in the marketplace that accepts a piece of comb, honeycomb, both sides, laden with pollen pellets. And it has the ability to separate the pellets from the comb itself. In a roundabout way, this is a description of how it works. You first chill or freeze the comb, because that's an important detail. It does two things. First, it firms up the pollen into a frozen little pellet. And second, it renders the beeswax very brittle. Now, I don't know if you could take some old, crusty, dark mahogany comb and do this with it. I don't know that it would work that way. But younger, cleaner comb would get brittle and break apart. To harvest the bee bread, you place it in the hopper of the machine and it uses some sort of mechanism to grind the comb and spit out the little pollen pellets intact because they're frozen and they don't pass through. It's probably not too dissimilar for how they take peas out of the pod or something else like that. The output of the machine is pollen pellets with a little bit of a a powdery wax residue wax flakes that fall into the hopper with the pellets. To finish the process, they take the pollen pellets over to a tray that has deliberate patterns of holes, small enough for the dust particles to fall through, but big enough to prevent the pollen, and they just shake it back and forth until they end up with a relatively clean product. The machines that do this can be found and purchased on the web. And, you know, primarily the ones that I found when I started poking around were all from European markets. But I'm guessing if you dig well enough, you can find them elsewhere, say in the United States. A picture, or better yet, a video clip is worth a thousand words. Look in the show notes for this episode for a link to a video of a machine that demonstrates large-scale harvesting operation of pollen pellets. 
I thought there was a bonus. Last word is there was one other method that I'm familiar with that uses something not too different from using equipment designed for cutcomb honey. A company made a modular plastic honeycomb grid that is the depth of one side of the comb. It's all plastic and it's sort of like a cartridge. And the way that it works is it allows you to set them up in a form that's about the same size as a honeybee frame. You lay the cartridges down into the form, which has a piece of wax paper placed over it like a midrib. And you clip them all together on one side of the midrib. And you flip the form over and you clip them together. And when you hold it up, it looks like a honeybee frame with plastic cells. So bear with me about how this works. I'll describe it further and it becomes more clear. You place that frame in the hive and well, of course the bees will fill it with pollen for you to harvest. When it comes to harvesting, you take the frame out, you break all the cartridges apart and you take this special device that's the same shape and dimension of an individual cartridge. And it has all these stubs that are the same dimension and depth of the cells. So you set the cartridge in a frame and you take the stub thing and you put it over and index it. And when you push down, all of the stubs push through the cell and push the pellet out the other side. It's kind of really cool, really neat invention. I don't know how great the bees do for building into plastic, but Obviously, when you get going in the throes of the season, they'll do it. So here again, a video is much more informative about the approach and technique employed. And this one's really ingenious, but I can only imagine that it would be suited for good times when bees are on a massive nectar flow in a plant bloom. I found a study that shows use of this tool. And it has some amazing photos of the process they use to harvest the honey and this contraption that I described. It's kind of cool to see how the ingenuity of this thing came about. And, you know, the odd thing is the one that I found, and I'm sure there's a couple different variations, came out of the Ukraine. There was a patent in the Ukraine for this. I tried to look up the patent. I had the number. But with all that's going on there, I wasn't able to trace it back. Still, this one is worth the trip to the show notes. Go to bkcorner.org, show 235, and click on the links. Short videos, short description to the, you know, pictures that are in that study. And you'll get to see all these things in play. They're kind of ingenious and really cool. Roundtable number two, I call this one shiny. If I paid attention to things sometimes and wasn't so scattered with all the things I'm always doing, I might have a better sense of this. What am I talking about? I'm talking about the website for our podcast. I was thinking recently about how I used to hand code the website from scratch, writing the HTML and building all the tags and all that stuff. And recently it floated to the surface that when I put those days behind me and switched to WordPress to make life easier, 
it really did make an improvement because I could focus on the content and I didn't spend so much time doing web stuff. The other day I was adding a post to the website when I had the notion that, boy, the site is starting to look old, not very appealing, and it could use a touch of a facelift. I spent a little bit of time looking around at the options and chose a new design to overlay the site and... If you happen to do what I just said a moment ago, go to bkcorner.org. You'll note that the site has a little bit of a different look to it. The design I chose did not stray too far from what was there, as I didn't want to get away from the muscle memory of where things are for users who have been with me for a while, and use the website and know where things are to be found. It's more of a facelift with some modernization and by my eye it looks a little cleaner, a little more readable. I'll take a moment to say that a few things I rediscovered while performing the switchover. I lost a feature that I really liked and peeked at every once in a while when coming back to the page. The previous design had a plugin called Cluster Maps and it showed where visitors were coming from. It was something I connected with, as I was always surprised and frankly reminded every time I looked at it that people listening to the show were coming from all over the world. The fact is, quite a slice of the listening base on a weekly basis are coming from abroad. And this sensibility had given me pause to be a bit more expansive when I'm describing things about topics, and I'm cognizant that many of the listeners might want to have things in, let's say, the metric system and not the U.S. version, for example. Another interesting observation which helped me with the cause was a factoid that's been tracked since I put the website up on WordPress in, I think, 2019 or 2020. Being an IT tech guy, I know how much stock to put in something like this number, but I also know how to calibrate it when, it when really kind of considering what it means. The factoid, which is available from the website, is there are 380,000 plus visitors to the website since I put it up in WordPress. I wish I could remember when I put the site up explicitly. But I know that I changed hosting and not too long ago uh, moved the WordPress hosting from the original one to the current one. And I want to say that was 19 or 20. I don't think it was as late as 21. Now, I don't know what one is to think of that number. I have some things in place in the background of the site to strip out visiting robots to keep those numbers down and more realistic. If you don't know what I mean, Google, Bing, other search engines come and they count as traffic visiting the site. There's tags that you could put that says no robots, which means it won't count those. But I only put those for the big ones, and I don't know who does and doesn't honor them. So I know a lot of that 380,000 number is search engines coming all the time to see the site and get the content so that when you search, you can find it doesn't mean that miscellaneous services aren't scanning the page, but I know by IT acumen, because I do websites for a living in my day job, 
that at least half, if not a bit more of that traffic could be extraneous services. But still, if I cut that number in half and account for the handful of years since 19, that makes me pretty happy. That's not a bad ratio. If one added up all the hours and hours and hours of typing out the show notes and the features that were captured over time, I'm positive that I would have physically weeks and weeks of my life invested. And all that I could hope for is that other people are coming to the website and learning from the work previously completed. I have the page open as I talk about this, and there's a little feature that might go unnoticed on the menu. I wanted to share that it's new to this design. Right side, there's a crescent moon icon. If you click on that, the site switches from light mode to dark mode. And I kind of think the site looks cool in dark mode. So give it a click. One thing that's weird is it seems to change to the base URL, which is NJ Swarm. Just change it back to PK Corner. All right, final observation. Then it's time to move on. I have a store on the site simply because it was my dream to someday see someone wearing a PK Corner t-shirt out in the wild. When that happens, I'm going to feel like my dream has come full circle. I did see one person once wearing one when I went to a meeting, but they knew I was coming to the meeting and bought it and wanted to surprise me. Anyway, it prompted me to go look at the Spring store, which is the vendor behind those t-shirts. And lo and behold, darn, if there weren't a bunch of them sold, stickers, decals, mugs, whatever it is. When I built that Spring store, I set up all the t-shirts to be like, a 50 cent profit only because I had to have profit or they wouldn't let me put it in as a catalog. I wasn't trying to make money on them. I just wanted to be able to have t-shirts for sale because so many people had said, Hey, you know, it would be cool if you offer t-shirts. Well, lo and behold, the profit making 50 cents at a time and some of the items cost went up, but the price didn't raise. So they sent me notices saying I need to raise the price. I'm below cost, which I had to take care of, or they were going to stop selling it. Anyway, thank you for buying stuff. That's kind of cool. I'm still waiting to see somebody wear something. And, you know, look, if you're interested, there's a bunch of different designs and maybe that compels me to make a couple more. I digress. I'm still looking to see if I can get that cluster maps thing back, but I had to abandon the cause because there's only so many hours in the day and the plugin wasn't compatible with the new theme. Take a look. If you use the website, hopefully you'll find it a little bit better than it was before. Easier to read and it just looks a little nicer. Round table number three, pastilles. You know, I'm planning to do one thing when I find a short block of time that corresponds to my recent bent to get organized and clean things up around my workshop. When you walk into my basement workshop, there's a shelf unit on the right side by the door that have piles of zip top bags loaded with rendered wax. They have been processed over time and they consist of two variations, clean, pristine capping wax, and some old melted down utility wax that came from melting old combs being retired from service. 
Each time we come across a stash of wax from some operation, we place it in our solar wax melter and it drips down and falls into the metal pan that we use to catch the wax as it melts, like a metal roasting pan. If you want to imagine how much wax is there, probably it's a dozen and a half gallon size zip top bags that have various size clumps, clusters of misshapen wax that are just sitting in a pile on the top shelf. My OCD nerve twinges every time I walk into the space when I see the pile, especially since I know that at one time we had a plan for getting rid of that stuff in a more palatable way, which we had a similar volume of wax and we melted it all in one big batch and poured it into silicone molds. It's a really nice way to create what we call wax pucks. And you simply sell them in pucks because they're beautiful designs. The ones that we bought have these floral, I won't go too crazy, but they're, they're pretty. But storing them in pucks makes them easier to organize and store. And they just look nicer than big clumps of messy wax. This leads me to an opportunity of two things that I have on a want list. I've always wanted to try a small-scale dipped candle-making session. Making tapered candles just like the ones I remember seeing in a demonstration as a kid. Put a pin in that, I want to come back to it. Secondly, I'm interested in trying out something that I've seen just recently for making wax pastilles. As to the word pastilles, which is spelled P-A-S-T-I-L-L-E-S, it is defined as a type of sweet or medicinal pill, kind of analogous to what we would call lozenge. Classically, if you've ever had a small mint in a tin, say Altoids, then you could make connection with what might be a pastel shape, although I'm sure they come in all forms and sizes. As to the context, I think the term is being used loosely in what I'm going to describe as wax bits that are small and in the form of, say, little tiny pill shapes. And there's a cool alternative that has me interested to give it a go. The backstory of this is somewhere along the line, we purchased some silicone hot pads that are embossed with a honeycomb pattern. I thought they were cool. That's why I bought them. They serve two purposes in our kitchen. The first was what they're intended to be. We use them as hot pads to set something on. A lot of times when we say Thanksgiving dinner, we set the hot pads out and people notice that, of course, they're honeycomb pattern. That's just us. But the second bonus is that the pattern can be used to press into cake frosting or use your imagination. Whatever you want to do to emboss a honeycomb pattern on whatever it is to come into contact with. Imagine you cover something with fondant and you push it in and then you can make neat designs. Recently, I saw a video that opens up a third option. If you pour wax into those silicone bits and let it cool, you can invert the hot pad and pop out all the small hexagon pastilles. 
From the inspirational video I watched that gave me this idea, it doesn't seem that hard of a process. You pour the wax in, you skim off the excess with something that looks almost like a spackle knife, and you wait for it to cool. Once it's solidified, you turn it over, and somewhere you have a baking sheet with a piece of wax paper on it, and you pop all the little morsels out and let them cool and then put them in the freezer or put them someplace cold where they chill. After they chill, they become hard little nuggets and you could put them in a zip top bag and then you could store them at room temperature or someplace where they're not going to get hot and melt altogether. What's the benefit to this form factor? Well, if you're looking to make something that requires smaller quantities of wax, these are easy to weigh out and they melt quickly because of the small form factor. And I think universally, this is why it's sold in pastilles because it's easier to work with. Most DIYers would prefer to use something in this form because look, we beekeepers, we can take a hunk of wax and carve off a piece and melt it. And yeah, you stand there and you stir the chunk of wax until the thing finally melts down. But when you're a DIYer, who's got time for that? You know, when you're making products with beeswax, you want to put these little pellets in just the right amount and they should melt quickly and you're off to doing whatever amazing thing you're trying to TikTok or Instagram. So this is me saying to you, stay tuned. We have the wax melting to do to get rid of that messy shelf on a short list. And that leads me back to the pin I put into making candles. In the next few weeks, I have a side by sidebar episode prepped that dovetails nicely with this topic. I'm going to spend some time setting up a small scale taper candle setup. And I'm going to talk about the inspiration to that and the approach I plan to take as we're going to make some tapers. Never done that before. So stay tuned in the coming weeks for that feature. And when I do that, I'm going to make the pastilles and I'll let you know if there's any wrinkles to the process. Round table number four, I call this one reflection. You know, every once in a while while I'm doing something, the other day I was making some content for the management mentoring program. It got me to thinking about something that I've covered in the past. And it makes me wonder, whatever happened to those things? Case in point, neonics in Europe. They ban the neonics. And occasionally on this show, this topic floats to my mental stage front and center. And I think they banned neonics. Did it solve the problems of the world over there in the, in the European Union? You don't hear much about that. Now I'm always curious as to why that didn't happen. There were features. Let me run a couple of them. Natural methods of mite control. I want to talk about the ecofloor. The actual thought that crossed my mind the other day was about something I read a while back concerning the whole natural way of combating pests in the hives and ways of improving the actual ecosystem inside the hive. 
I started to think back about an article that I read concerning Phil Chandler, a beekeeper from Europe, and his work to create a living ecosystem in the bottom of the hive. He referred to this technique, as I've talked about in the past, as an eco-floor. The premise was to put materials in the bottom of the hive that provides a habitat for various beneficial insects, like earwigs, wood lice, ants, maybe other critters, that would in essence emulate the floor of, say, a hollow tree. Think about uh, bees living in a tree. They are in this cavity and whatever debris from inside is falling down. And if you've ever cut a bee tree open, you know that. I've seen it. There's like this fluff at the bottom. And yeah, there's critters in it. And the premise here is along with the beneficial, I suppose that it's possible that it could house non-beneficials. It would be a haven for microbes, fungus, good and bad bacteria, and such. And so the debate was, when all this was going on, about creating this at the bottom of a beehive, would it be good or would it be bad? And I wonder whatever happened to it. They're interesting ideas, but there's nothing out there that said this was going to pan out. And Phil was dabbling in this many years ago, and I suppose if something came of it, we'd probably have heard of it by now. That's not all. Mushrooms. Paul Stamets made an idea popular that seemed a little more promising because of all the notoriety he got back in 2020. And this thing was making inroads. There were TED Talks and other things about it. If you have an interest to learn more on this one, you can go back to episode 150. Hi, I'm Paul. <laughs> that was the name of the episode, as I remember. That's a Nickelodeon reference, Kevin Moment. There's so many different things out there that I, I wonder what happened. They lose track of them. They become like moments in time. Pseudoscorpions. There was a biological thought that they had been proven to feed on mites. And I know, again, I think I've spoken of these in past episodes. I can't be sure which one. Great idea, but apparently it wasn't very practical, depending on where you were and what happened to the pseudoscorpions when you deposited them in your area. And... But if I had to reach back and make an educated guess, maybe it was too expensive, not practical to ship them, they didn't last long enough to be effective over a period of time. Maybe they can't get to the mites in the cells and so on. Again, I suppose if it was going to work, it likely would be something we'd be doing. There's strats, beneficial insects. Similar class to the pseudoscorpions that chomp down on varroa mites. They prefer pupating in the soil. And so you have to cast them around. And then... Yeah, they'll munch on Varroa, but in time, they're going to look to leave the hive and go reproduce in the soil. So they don't stay in the hive, and you'd have to constantly replenish these 
They were called like Stratololiaps or something, not too different from Tropilelops, but not to be confused. <laughs> you know, so again, pseudoscorpions and all these things, they were out there. Ecofloor, I said earwigs. I've seen earwigs in my hive. I don't actually love them. We had them in our house for some reason when I was a kid. I remember being in the shower. They like moist environments. Skeeved me out. Earwigs and spiders, no bueno for me. <laughs> they make my skin crawl. I always pictured an earwig crawling in my ears at night and pinching my brains as a little kid. Of course, one should be clear that they do not crawl into human ears and that the pinchers are mostly show and not very powerful enough to cause any human injury. Ask me how I know. I was so fessed out about them, I went and looked up this research at one point and kind of carry it with me in life to say, know thy enemy. <laughs> but they still give me the heebie-jeebies. I went looking for um, the information, do earwigs eat mites? And the sad news, I never found anything that suggests that they do, but it was inferred at some point that they're there feeding on something and it's possible that they could be feeding on the mites in the detritus that is at the bottom of the hive because they're known to be overall scavengers. And this comes full circle to what Phil Chandler was trying to do with his floor. He thought maybe if he harbored that environment, something there would learn to live and eat the mites. The reason I got on this bent is something else that I've talked about on the episode. A different approach to control mites, which is the plant time all. Time all around your hives. And as you walk around, you're releasing oils, the natural oils from crushing the plants. The theory was mites would take it in the hemolymph. But now we know from Sam Ramsey that they're not feeding. Like you can't feed time all to a mite and kill it, or a bee, sorry, because people were putting thyme oil in food and the bees were eating the food and they thought thyme oil is poisonous to mites and if the mite is biting on the bee, at least they would be taking hemolymph and die from any concentration that passed through. That all was debunked. Or was it? <laughs> so... Again, coming back to the, the premise of this, I, I wonder what happened to it. Reflection-wise, there were people doing studies on this because I know Sammy Ramsey says that the bees feed off of the fat body. But they do, from what I understand, it wasn't like 100%. They do take in hemolymph. And if there happens to be time oil, some derivative in the hemolymph, which is like blood for bees, then maybe they're getting a little taste of it. Isn't that interesting? I, I, I don't know. I, I just, all these things I kind of worry about, wonder about. Okay, let me put this away, but I have to tell a little story. The Western Journal of Medicine documented a case of an earwig in an eight-year-old girl. 
in her ear gives me goosebumps to talk about it. This is a snippet of what was documented. Quote, At 3 a.m., my 8-year-old daughter awoke me from a sound sleep. She was extremely upset. For the preceding few minutes, she had attempted to remove a creature crawling about in her left ear canal. A light sleeper, she had been aroused by the sound of little feet. End quote. I have no words for that. <laughs> it says that in the documented account, quote, a female earwig measuring 20 millimeters in length cautiously emerged to the relief of the child and father, end quote. It goes on to say more, but I'll stop there. You want to know the rest of the story, you can click on the link in the show notes to learn more of the account. You know, speaking of show notes, all the things that I talked about, I have some resources for you. Earwig information on Wikipedia, the earwig and the ear thing, strats, or stratololelops scamotes for varroa control. I murdered that on purpose because I have no idea how to say it. But this was covered in two different places that I found, and one of them was bee culture. Placing hives on dirt so strats can do the job. Gear Stirlint, another resource for that. How to make an eco floor, horizontal top bar. It's a video from Phil Chandler. Paul Stamets, the mycologist, about the mushrooms. And Mushrooms and Bees, Hi, I'm Paul, episode 150. I'll have links to all of those in the show notes. And I'm, I'm going to end with this notion about this stuff. There are times when I bring this back, and I know I'm being repetitive to previous episodes, but somewhere along the line, I want to know if somebody finally did something and came back and said, you know what, I know what the outcome of that was. Like, for example, in an episode recently, I was talking about sugar dusting with someone. Powdered sugar dusting was a thing when I first started beekeeping, and then it was debunked and it went away. And if you listen to that episode recently, you'll find out that someone was having success with it. And my curiosity would be, would people who just ignored the fact that researchers said it didn't work or whatever and kept doing it, come out of the woodwork and say, yeah, I'm using that. It's an integrated pest management and I'm having great success with it. I'm not trying to say that maybe it was good or bad or indifferent, that researchers are wrong, but... I'm always curious as to the fringe element of these things that we move on from. And again, if anybody knows what the outcome was for neonics going away in Europe, you're in Europe and you're in the world where there are no neonics. Did it solve your mite problem? What happened there? If I go back and think about colony collapse disorder, one of the decrees one of the fundamental tenets of colony collapse disorder was if you ban the neonics the bees would come back i'm not hearing any ticker tape parades going on over there in france or wherever they did it so just curious if you have any thoughts on that kevin at bkcorner.org is where you can write in to me moving to the back of the book topic number one for this episode it called building blocks of spring you know, it might be a touch early to cover this topic. For some reason, though, it's top of mind for me. And 
Perhaps it's because I have concerns of how much of a beating I'm going to take this year, given the number of hives I know that I've already lost this winter. That turns me to recognizing that it will be a rebuilding year, and I'm sure I'm going to have to go down the path of describing what that looks like, rebuilding, when spring gets here. But to the point of this topic, I've been harboring a notion in the back of my mind about ensuring that anything that makes it through is going to have to be healthy and as productive as I can make it so that I can leverage the subsequent resources from the survivor hives to build healthy, robust new colonies when it comes to splitting season in the spring. There's an interesting passage that I have flagged on Randy Oliver's website. And if I'm not mistaken, it harkens back to something he wrote in 2007, before I was even a beekeeper. I keep that note tucked away, and every once in a while I go back and reread that information just because I don't want to lose it to time. And it's a bit of an insurance element that should I ever get myself into the situation I think I'm facing, I need to keep this in mind in order to support a fast buildup in the spring. If you're a beekeeper who's looking to expand, then this is probably relevant to you too, so that you can ensure that you have the best productivity in the springtime. Now, I don't think that any of the colonies that I put to bed for winter are lacking in reserves, but when it comes time to assess colony state coming out of spring, whether the colony still has reserves or not, I'm in the mind that I can probably rearrange whatever is there and take them from they're in a good state and move them to they're in an optimal state for growth of the colony in anticipation of making splits to repopulate the boxes that I've lost. Now to what Randy captured and what has stuck in my mind after all of these years, I have a passage on an article that he wrote about having fat bees. That was the series he was on, bookmarked. And it says, quote, There's an interesting aspect of bee behavior that has long been noted. Colonies are hesitant to fully engage in brood rearing unless they have adequate reserves of honey. Bees can smell the presence of empty comb, determine nectar flow within the colony, but we're not sure how they sense the amount of honey stores. But I've noticed that when I make up singles with drawn comb, the bees brood up more quickly if they have some combs of honey in contact with the cluster. Otherwise, they seem to hold off until they've put away some stores. Same with new colonies on foundation. They like to keep a reserve on either side of the brood nest. This makes perfect sense since colonies that overextend themselves can easily starve during inclement weather. So, if you're feeding in order to stimulate brood rearing, realize that it may take a round of two of syrup before you see impressive results, and in parentheses, and don't forget the pollen supplements if indicated, end of parentheses, end quote. For brevity of that passage, it had some attributes with the sources. I left them out, but when I share with you that they were names such as Citing Doolittle, Sealy, 
renderer. Well, I think if you've been around, you know that those names are stalwarts in science when it comes to, you know, beekeeping information. And that is the premise behind what Randy wrote. Now, taking this concept one step further, let me presuppose what I might find and how I might behave to give you an idea of a mental picture that I've already painted in my mind about how I'm going to address a colony that has come out of winter and is a good candidate for moving in the direction of making an early spring split. Stand with me at the hive, if you will. I've just opened a double deep and find a moderate-sized colony in the honey dome, and I'm thinking about my rearrangement of the colony to make a split in a few weeks. This is just early stage nectar flow, and I am going to make the split at the time when the nectar flow in the region really kicks off. On the first optimal day when the weather cooperates, I would consider doing a reversal of the boxes. And then I would assess the frames in and around the colony itself. I'm going to isolate any of the frames that have brood being reared on them. Especially those that have a lot of brood. If there's peripheral brood on a couple frames, I, I might take them out. I, I will judge accordingly at the moment. I will stash all of the frames that have had brood in operation right in the middle of the bottom box. I would then look at the opportunity to place in the periphery the best food frames I can afford out of whatever I have available to me, and that includes frames coming out of hives that didn't survive for the winter. I'll put a pin in that. I would make sure that if I were doing an early reversal, that the entrance was closed to the smallest opening, especially since I put them on the bottom, and I might even consider placing a slatted rack over the bottom board to keep the colony up and away from any cold air drafts that might come through that little tiny entrance hole. If you've not seen a slotted rack, it's a device that you place above the bottom board and under the brood box. And it has strips that run from the front to the back of the hive spaced out. And it provides kind of like an air gap cushion from the air coming into the bottom board and collecting and the air that sits directly underneath the colony. The premise of the slatted rack is it would provide me extra advantage as the colony might have a bit of that buffer zone to retain a little more heat down towards the bottom of the frames, which would net out that the queen in early spring can build brood all the way down to the bottom of the frame. Without the slatted rack, she might build down, but as she gets to the cooler bottom atmosphere of the hive, she may not go all the way down. And then, after I've finished this setup in the early spring, I would consistently look at what the bees are doing on two key points. I would assess their stores to see how they're doing in bringing in plentiful and fresh food. And if for some reason they seem to be lagging, I would consider helping them out. I'm not one for feeding pollen patties. Primarily because in the spring, in our region, the bees have an overabundance of fresh pollen. But 
if in the case I found that they were lacking the protein reserves, following what Randy just said, I would feed them. I would ensure that they have plenty of fresh nectar and or honey stores. And if need be, I would give them a taste for sugar solution so that I can ensure that there's a balance of those three elements. I want to see a little wet nectar, some ripened honey, in reserve to the exterior and sides along with fresh pollen stored right next to the brood factory. Now that was the first thing of the two. Coming to the second thing, I would look at the brood in development. I would want to draw up a frame, turn the face to the sun, and looking down into the bottom of the cells, I would wish to see glistening royal jelly in abundance feeding all of the larvae. I want to see every bee in development being mass provisioned with food, and that's going to assure me that this colony is going to thrive, and the queen, along with the worker bees, that they have behind him all of the resources they're going to need to go to town and build a large and robust colony. Now, in normal circumstances, I would take what the world gives me. Let me explain what I mean. It's an odd thing for me to say, as a quasi-treatment-free beekeeper, I feel a little bit like a beehaver when I'm doing this over the last couple years that I've been running this experiment. This treatment-free-esque experiment I'm doing has me in a really weird place because normally when I manage colonies in a traditional way, they're so well positioned to come out of spring. They've, they've had great mite management, they've got plenty of food, they have large robust colonies, but with treatment-esque, you're not doing that stuff, you're just kind of letting them ride the way they are. And, you know, when you see the colonies come out of spring, they are what they are. I normally, when I manage my bees, don't have to consider all this, but being treatment-esque makes me a bit of a bee-haver, and it's been kind of a, an adjustment. Ironically, as a traditionalist, stalwart, treatment-free beekeeper, they would experience apoplexy when hearing what I'm talking about here because a tried and true in the blue treatment-free beekeeper would not feed in the manner that I just described. I will remind those who are paying attention that I didn't sign up to be a true blue dyed-in-the-wool treatment-free beekeeper and that where necessary, I said I would take the steps to do what I could to take care of the colonies that I have to ensure they're not suffering under any disease loads, and that if they were less than optimal, I might take some conservative measures to, to move them through. The term that I coined for this approach was low treatment method. Now, the exercise that I just ran follows the theme of what I talked about in the previous show, just an episode ago or two, that assessing the operation and making plans for spring is something you should be doing now. And if I plan to put this procedure in place, I would have to be prepared to do so. I'd have to mentally run it through my mind and be ready to execute and bring whatever resources 
I'd have to look at any of the colonies that didn't make it with an eye towards what can I do with this stuff. And so practicing what I preach, you just heard me share out loud one of the notions that I have in mind when it comes time to take the roof off the colonies and do my spring triage. I don't know, uh, you know, top of mind. I thought it would be interesting to share this out loud. As I re-record this, I will tell you that it's early morning. Before I pulled back the covers this morning, this is what was rummaging through my mind. And I came downstairs to record it because I thought it might be interesting to show that this is how a lot of beekeepers think. At least I think this is how beekeepers think. I'm having my first cup of coffee and recording this. And I guess that gives me a little solace as this would... uh, differentiates me from a bee haver is I really do care about this stuff. Now I put a pin in something and I want to come back to it. And it's a, an addendum to the notion of some of the ideas that I've expressed. The elephant in the room is that you're thinking about sharing resources out of a dead hive. I'm in the process of doing CSI dead out lesson for management mentoring, And it came to, my thought recently that how do you put a hive back into service when it didn't make it? Are you free to use the resources out of a dead hive? I'm going to say one thing that needs to underpin what I'm about to talk about. It was just seven degrees last week for three days. If you take a colony and resources like honey and whatever, and you put it for seven degrees in three days, it's going to freeze whatever microbes were in there. It's not like trying to use resources from a festering hive in the middle of summer that just died. And as much as I've been low treatment, treatment free, I looked at all my colonies before they went to their good night in the wintertime. And I know that none of them were festering. There was no European foul brood. There was no parasitic mite syndrome. There was no bad, dead, decaying brood intermixed with whatever was being laid. If bees die in winter and they die of varroa mite impacts, it's typically because the physical bee is sick, wounded, and not in good shape. And yes, they may be spreading diseases around in in the population. And so I don't know that I would look to use brood frames in reserve. But I do know, as I just stated, that they've all been frozen. And so if you were in a first year season, you had relatively fresh comb, not laden with nasties coming from the outside and you had brood that perished in it, if you look at the comb and the brood patterns that was left behind is not festering, I might triage that and consider putting it back into service. Or if it just didn't strike me well, I would get a knife and cut that foundation out. Or if you're using plastic, pop it out. And I put a fresh one in there. But when it comes to the food that I fed in the fall, And I did feed a little because we have a dearth here in New Jersey and our bees 
generally you're just not going to make it through if you don't supplemental feed them. That's sugar water that I fed, and it's nectar and honey from the fall nectar flow. Perfectly suitable as far as I'm concerned. So if I have full frames of capped honey, I might take a couple of those frames, stick them to the outside of the colony that I just rejiggered, and I might scrape the side towards the inside of the colony to open up some of that honey so that they would have access to the smell and realize there's honey reserves. So I don't know if this is me thinking too much into this, but if I take a colony that just came through winter and was in the upper box and had walked around and did whatever they were going to do inside the colony and I put them in a lower box and I take a frame of capped honey from some other source and I stick it in position number 10. That's not their honey. They've not walked on it. There's no footprint pheromone. And I don't know. I just feel like bees would understand that if you scrape those frames, like put a couple slashes in it and you expose the smell of fresh honey, they would get it. They would understand and they would go over and operate on it. And if they operated on it, then they would leave their footprint pheromone. And then guess what? It becomes theirs. So all of this stuff, as I said, was rummaging through my brain this morning when I got up. And now I've just shared it with you. And I'm hoping that you'll find that it was an interesting exercise to go through. And I can't wait for spring to get here. I don't like the fact that I've lost hives and I want things to be whole. I was having a conversation with Bob Kloss yesterday on the phone, and I said to him, I'm trying to see the bright side of this. It's going to free up a lot of my equipment, where the bees didn't survive, to triage it for repair, replacement, and clean up the organization a little bit. My stuff's looking a little bit fussy. But gosh, you know what? I'd have been okay with mediocre equipment if it had bees in it for another season. Yeah, that's the path I would have rather gone, and I could have switched them into battery equipment rather than bring all that equipment back and rehabilitate it without bees out in the yard. Anyway, that's the thought process for the day. Topic number two, I call this one the manual. If you've been a beekeeper for any appreciable time, then it's highly likely that somewhere along the line you've seen photographs of insects, honeybees, bumblebees, wasps, that are incredibly detailed and plain fascinating to look at somewhere in your travels. If you have, then you know what I'm talking about. These extreme, close-up, fully detailed, amazing color images of an insect against a black background and it shows every facet of the anatomy in full glorious detail. To take this one step further, I could tell you right now how to see such an image if you have availability to a computer. When you have a moment, do a search on the name Sam Drogi. The last name is spelled D-R-O-E-G-E. And add the word B to your search query. You will be presented with the most amazing photos of all kinds of insects. And you will instantly appreciate the splendor of what has been 
accomplished in capturing these images. Now, I don't know what the story is in the world of insect photography, but I can only imagine that Sam is a rock star or perhaps a god when it comes to this because for someone of his talent to have emerged, to have his own TED Talk about this must mean that he's one of those class of people that is off the scale. But I digress. What I really want to talk about is he's part of a community that's willing to share all of the information you could ever want. If you had an inclination on how to get started to catch, identify, and manage insects. In the show notes for this show will be a link to the very handy manual. That's not meant to be a joke. That's the name. Now I've known about this resource and have referred to it here and there over the years, but I don't know that I've ever shared it on the program. I looked at it just recently and well, I'm physically looking at it at the moment on my screen as I record this. And it has an indication that it was last revised April of 2015. Yeah, it's kind of a long time ago, but let me dissuade you from thinking that this is not a useful resource. It is, in fact, one of the most comprehensive treasure troves of information related to the subject matter it contains that I have ever seen. Quite frankly, I'm astonished at the thorough detail that's presented and you can get completely lost in any one of the dozens of subjects inside this 65-page manual. Before I skim over what's in it, I want to tell you that, as someone who appreciates an organized presentation of content, the layout, the design, the depth, the progression of the topics, the supporting illustrations and photographs, it's all there. I consider myself a fairly informed individual given my exposure to insects over a decade and a half. And I can comprehend the amount of love that went into structuring the content to be a useful guide for the information being conveyed throughout the manual. A short overview of the contents, which encompasses well over two dozen instructions for how to perform functions, let's just give it that net word, where master techniques in the handling of interactions with insects that you might capture for study include where to find insects, how to net insects, how to store collected insects, different ways to trap and hold and photograph insects, information on identification of specimens, ways to pin insects, use of microscopes, different equipment you can make for utilization of all those tasks in the field and in the lab, processing bees for inspection and display, instructions for slide work under microscopes, glossaries of terms to help you understand what you're looking at when you have full detailed anatomy and illustrations to boot. Uh, you know, trust me when I tell you that I just hit the highlights for what's available. Maybe you're a novice beekeeper and somewhere along the line you decide you want to take a detailed photograph of a queen or something that you've encountered. Ask yourself, how much do you know about going about that? 
I found myself in that position one day when I came across a honeybee encased in plastic. To be more specific, it was a bee perfectly preserved in acrylic block sitting on a shelf somewhere in a store, and I wanted to know how to do that. I'm, you know, as I think back, I'm pretty sure I spoke about this on the program somewhere along the line. I actually created some bees ensconced in acrylic by purchasing a kit. And I have to say, my first foray was simple and just okay in the result. I was able to enrobe the bees that I chose in acrylic. They were centered in the block and there were no bubbles. And it looked similar to the piece that I saw on the shelf I was trying to emulate. The problem, however, was that all of the bees that I used, including a honeybee queen, they looked wet and shrunk and the hairs were matted. And all of that occurred because they came in contact with the material that they were enrobed in. After I finished that experiment, I decided to do some research on what should I do to correct that. And that's when I found this guide, which explains how you would dry and preserve a bee so that it would not look wet when used in the application I was trying to do. The level of know-how for doing certain things shared in this document is off the scale. Case in point, when we took the master beekeepers test, one of the visuals that we had to look at were bees pinned under glass. They were actually native insects. It struck me in the moment even with the gravitas of trying to pass a master beekeeper test, how amazing the display case was that contained all of those pinned insects. The effort and the expertise required to create such a showpiece was recognizable to me, even in that moment. And I think about when I go to a museum and I see walls of insects pinned and I go, wow, the amount of work, that was a Kevin moment. I only hope that I have picked your curiosity enough that even if this is not something you are considering venturing into, you would just take a moment to go to the show notes for this show and click on the link and just browse the guide and be in appreciation for what's available to you. So I want to take a moment to anonymously thank whoever was involved in creating the document. It's in PDF form and it can be downloaded. And also to the Elmira College, which hosts the website where the resource is made available. It has to be said that in the opening statement, the bulk of the text was compiled by Sam Drogi. I hope I said his name right out of respect for Sam's work. When he was at the USGS Bee Inventory and Monitoring Lab, Patuxent Wildlife Research Center in Beltsville, Maryland. So yes, Sam deserves a nod for what appears to be a life's worth of work shared in just an amazing manual, the manual. <laughs> kind of thought that was funny. A link to the manual, a very handy manual, how to catch and identify bees and manage a collection is available in the show notes. You know, it feels like I've reached the bottom of the pile and this is a good place to close out the episode. As it is customary, I am going to throw in a couple things that are top of mind to close the showdown. 
Given we're smack dab in the middle of winter, really not much to report on from the local B report. Other than yesterday, it was unseasonably warm and I took a moment to walk up into the apiary and just peek at what seems to be going on. I've mentioned a few times that I'm going to take a beating this year. Going into winter, I had 12 hives on the property. And I suppose that should be conditionally footnoted with a caveat related to two of those hives in operation. I have left my top bar hive and my lion's hive unmolested for the past three seasons. And what I mean by that statement is, I have not done anything regarding to queen management and colony manipulations. Three seasons ago, for that season, I treated both of these colonies for varroa mites, but for the most recent two seasons, last season and this season, these hives have been left to their own devices. Now, having that knowledge, I suspected that sooner or later, the colonies would probably suffer some sort of failure, and well, it seems this is the year. Both of the hives were active going into winter, but they're no longer with us. I'm on this low treatment thing that I'm doing, but I considered those kind of outliers in the grand scheme of things. But really, they're kind of pretty similar to the rest of the hives in that they've been in this treatment-free-esque low treatment experiment. If I turn to what's left, the mix of colonies that were on the property were in different hive configurations. And to take inventory for survival, of the 10 other colonies, it appears that right now, best I could tell, four of them are operational. And as I record this, I still have my doubts as to whether those four are going to make it to spring and this is what I'm alluding to when I say I know I'm going to take it on the chin this year. At some point when the final tally is available, I will, in a future episode, expand more on the topic of low treatment approach and where I go from here. I do have three additional hives that were treated for varroa mites, and I must admit, due to the difficulties medically that I have, not in the most diligent way, last summer, but they were treated nonetheless, and they're placed at the Northwest Apiary at Valley Crest. And the last time that I checked on them, they looked quite suitable to making it into spring. As is with any hive, for all of us, time will tell. So in the next couple of episodes, you'll probably hear me talk a little bit more about what I'll be doing in the spring to carry on in my local yard. And I thought for the record, for this episode in this time frame at this moment in the backstory of this whole podcast was recorded actually to be a journal of our beekeeping activities, I would make this useful note as a sort of a January 2024 update. Now to a happier topic. I noticed the agenda is coalescing for the 2024 Eastern Apiculture Society Conference. It looks amazing. I very much enjoy participating in that summer getaway. Uh, the East Eastern Apiculture Society Conference this year is a little more special. I'm a little more enthusiastic about it, nervous and enthusiastic at the same time, because 
For the first time in history, Sharon's going to come with me. The bulk of the schedule for the conference has enough to keep her interested, which has always been my concern. It's going to take place, the conference, in the first week of August. And like I said, it looks really, really good. You know what? As I sit here and stare at by serendipity, I see that Sam Drogi is physically going to be present. He's presenting the topic of high-resolution stacked photos of bees using a common SLR. Now, how's that for an interesting intersection, given what I just recorded a few minutes ago? It seems that we will actually get the opportunity to say thank you to him right at the conference. How cool is that? I've, I've never met him. EasternApiculture.org is the website. Click on the conference link and browse around. You're going to see the list for the schedule there, and it looks as good as I had hoped. And I'm telling you, these uh, these Maryland folks, they, they are on kill. I am giving a presentation this year. I see that I'm on a Tuesday time slot. So if you're coming to the conference, you'll have a chance. Just tap me on the shoulder and say hello. I'll be bopping around all week. One last thing to note is one of the extracurricular activities taking place during the week is a trip to the USDA Bee Research Laboratory in Beltsville. This is a pre-registration sign-up. Can't do it at the show. And it does take you away from one of the conference presentation days for a single day. But, you know, look, if, if I think about it, I don't know that there could be a more interesting choice to consider giving up a conference day than to visit one of these places, a bee lab, that is so unique to beekeeping and so instrumental to the research that happens in the United States. And yeah, I really think it's a, a well, a, a suitable trade-off for sure. Yeah, the only problem is choices, choices. Uh, last part. One last thing to mention. I've been quietly mustering to get back on the horse for the second year delivery of the Manage Mentoring Program. I am of the behavior pattern where I do a lot of stuff in the background and then all of a sudden it gets released and off we go. For my long-term listeners, I'm not sure if you're sick of hearing this, but I do like to provide updates because I know some of the folks who listen in follow along and want to know what's going on with the program. And if you're brand new, well, this is going to be an interesting thing for you to consider because it's still early enough to get on board for the upcoming bee season. I've been talking about this free program we created and extended from the local beekeeping club that we make available, and now we're opening it up to the rest of the world. The bad news is, the first year went quite well building out all the content, but suffered a fairly major setback for the final quarter of last year. When I suffered a few unexpected medical problems that I wasn't counting on. It's not that I didn't recover from the medical problems, but, you know, domestic life, work life, and other things required me to catch up on all of that stuff. And unfortunately, I just never was able to get back over the hump to get the content out for the end of the year. Now, I've talked about the medical surgeries that I had for my gallbladder, but I hadn't disclosed that 
I'm having some additional challenges with the tumor that developed on the bottom of my left eyeball. Late last year, additional complications started to show up and I had to return to my eye surgeon for consultations to correct the degradation of vision in my left eye. I'm happy to report, now that we're at the end of this journey, that the follow-ups of the vision has improved quite a bit, but I'm going to require a quick surgery to correct some of the damage that was created to the lens of the eye after the surgery from 2023. I guess there is an impact when they stick needles through your eyes to the lens. (laughs) In comparison, this upcoming surgery is a walk in the park from the first one. It's going to be a day surgery. I'm not going to belabor the point, but, you know, I wanted to share in disclosure that there's been stuff going on behind the scenes. And the good news is the upcoming surgery is akin to, as I said, an outpatient procedure, and it should clear up the chapter of difficulties for this period of time. God willing, hopefully for a long period of time. Behind the scenes have been hard at work over the past few weeks, revamping the admittedly haphazard design that was thrown up when the program started. And I've rejiggered the website managementoring.com and improved the navigation and will continue to do so over the next number of weeks. I am reimagining how to engage with the program and building out the new design as we speak at the website. In parallel, I have been restructuring the second half of the program lessons and building out the content and will continue to build them out in real time, coming online in early February. From the get-go, I had always envisioned that when I got to the midpoint of the program, I would look at the presupposed lesson plan for the second half And given what I learned from the first half, refactor them at that time. And well, that's where we are right now. I'm at the cusp of building that content out. Two things you're going to see to finish this update. If you're a brand new beekeeper, take a new beekeepers course. And then come over to our program and follow the first year track leading to the second year track that I'm building to find supplemental information that's going to support you all year long. A beginner's beekeeper course is a great foundation, but trust me, when you're standing over the hive in April, having just taken your course back in February, it's a whole different ballgame. Let us help you with that. And the one thing I'm going to offer up is apologies for not getting those last handful of lessons to our current people in the program kind of falling off the map, but I hope that you found enough value in the program that you'll stay with us for the second year as we finish rounding out the rest of the content to December. Universally, the feedback that I got from those who did participate was, it was a great benefit. And the notion that I will offer an apology and only promise to keep going and appreciate those who participated in the program gave me feedback and helped me understand the value of the program for those who are learning to become new beekeepers, competent beekeepers. To close the show, I had an epiphany the other day, and I guess you consider this a heads up for the listeners. I don't take advertisements for this program. I've mentioned that a dozen plus years, yeah, that I've been producing the show that I I just don't do it. I don't take on sponsors. I've paid everything out of pocket. 
it's kind of on purpose, and I've talked about the reasons why in past episodes. But I had a moment the other day that I was thinking I really should promote the managed mentoring program with a little more gusto. It's always been the plan not to blow the horn about the program in any real way until it's fully developed. And then I am not talking about vaporware. And I want to be able to hang my hat when I walk in the door and talk about this great and wonderful program that's now available in its entirety. But the other day I was thinking, maybe um, an underwriter sound bit would be an interesting thing to add to the program in the front of future episodes. You know, something like an NPR advert, where they don't do adverts, they just give credit to people who support the program. This program is brought to you by Manage Mentoring, a completely free and online resource for how to get started in beekeeping. Yeah, so don't be surprised in the next couple of episodes if I consider trying that out to open the show with a short little teaser that just continually reminds folks that the program's available, especially this time of year. And I don't have to take some aside somewhere in the middle of the program to mention, oh, by the way, there's this program out there that exists in the world, because otherwise, how would you ever know about it? I guess we'll see how that plays out and whether it comes to fruition or not as I start to plan the next couple of episodes. Enough on that. That does it for today. Like our beloved bees, when beekeepers go together, they can accomplish great things. Thanks for listening, everybody. And be well.